0: Hey, Christ Community Church, good morning. My name is Robbie Baxter. I'm the assistant pastor here. It's my privilege to be bringing to you the Word of God this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, picking up in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. So if you would be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, and we will pick up in verse 13. This is the Word of God to us as people. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I have a question for us as we begin to look at our text this morning. The question is this. As you look to the year ahead, what are your hopes and expectations? What are your hopes and expectations? And how are these things shaping your plans and desires? Now, as we come to the final sermon of our Advent series and the main emphasis of this passage, we, we find it's this, redemption is a Trinitarian affair. Redemption is a Trinitarian affair. And this is a good theme for us to close the Advent season with, and it's also a good theme for us to brace ourselves with as we look forward with anticipation to the new year. Redemption is Trinitarian through and through. Now, what I mean by Trinitarian is this. God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son are all involved in securing our redemption to God. The Trinity is God in three persons, distinct, yet not divided, one, yet not blended. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet these three are not three gods, but one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. So our passage teaches us that this is our rescuing king. He's come on a Trinitarian mission of redemption. Now, in eternity, before the creation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoyed perfect fellowship with one another. Perfect fellowship. The life of God was filled with love and joy within the perfection of the Trinity. And it was from that perfection, not from any need in God, that God created the world. And it was from that perfect love, not from any need to be loved, that the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit determined to save God's people from our sin and adopt us into this divine life. Now, we've just celebrated Christmas this weekend. For all the joy of our celebrations, and I hope they were very joyful, for all the joy of our celebrations, they pale in comparison to the kind of joy that exists in the Fellowship of the Trinity and for all the ways in which maybe our celebrations perhaps weren't all that we hoped that they might be, that disappointment is nothing in comparison with the joy that we have been invited into by our adoption into this divine life. And we're soon going to be entering into a new year for all the things we may be hoping will be different about this year. They pale in comparison to the joy and the substance of the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. For all the plans we may now be making, they pale in comparison to the life we have been adopted into as beloved sons and daughters of the King. So will we determine even now to continue to cultivate our discipleship in recognition of this hope-filled reality? Because that's the, the key truth for our text. Jesus has come in the power of the Spirit as the beloved Son of the Father, to identify, that's huge, to identify with his people and fulfill all righteousness. This is a great mystery. It's the mystery of of our redemption, that the Holy Trinity would come and work together equally to secure our redemption to God. And Matthew clues us into this mystery by showing us first that our rescuing King came to identify with his people. That's huge. We're going to look at that in just a minute. And then secondly, that he came by the power of the Spirit, and thirdly, that he is the beloved Son of the Father. So, three clues to help us to recognize this mystery, this mystery of our redemption in Jesus. So, first, we see that Jesus identifies with his people. We see this in verses 13 through 15. Now, now this represents the very start of Jesus' entrance into public life. It marked the beginning of his ministry. Jesus came to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And yet John recognized at once that he was, in fact, the one who needed to be baptized by Jesus, by Jesus' kind of baptism, baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. Not that Jesus needed John's baptism. So John tried to prevent him. But Jesus replied with something of an unusual statement, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this statement has puzzled Bible readers in all the centuries since. What exactly does Jesus mean by this statement that we've got to do it to fulfill all righteousness? It's puzzling because we know, and John the Baptist knew, that Jesus didn't need a baptism to wash away sins because he didn't have any sins. But this fact clues us into the significance of what's going on here. Jesus intends to completely identify with the people he has come to save. He intends to take our need upon himself completely. He intends to bear the shame that our sin brings, to bear the need we have to be cleansed of it in order to fulfill for us all the righteousness that we lack. So R.T. France helpfully puts it this way in his commentary on Matthew. He says, As Jesus is baptized along with the others at Jordan, he is identified with all those who by accepting John's baptism have declared their desire for a new beginning with God. He thus prepares for his own role in bearing their weaknesses and eventually giving his life as a ransom for for many through shedding his blood for their forgiveness. If he is their representative, he must first be identified with them. Now, it's an amazing thing that Jesus identifies with us in this way. Our rescuing king hasn't just come to set up a new political order. He hasn't just come to set things right from a distance. He hasn't come merely to be adored. No, our rescuing king has come to identify with his people, to take our weaknesses upon himself and be for us our strength and our righteousness. So let this serve to clarify for us how desperate our condition is outside of Christ. Sin, we've said this often sin makes us less than human. It corrupts even our ability to turn in full righteousness and repent properly. But Jesus came to make us fully human, to give us new life in Him. So now, to look at Jesus is to look upon the most perfect manifestation of humanity that ever existed. Perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly holy, and he came to be that for us. And let's also use this as an opportunity to recognize the deep and Trinitarian love that God has for us. Jesus came to be these things for us so that he could robe us in his perfect righteousness and present us before the holiness of God without shame. And when we sin, Jesus' righteousness means that we get to run back to the throne of grace without shame. Because all that we need, all that we needed to be given access to God the Father, to be given access to this throne of grace, Jesus procured for us. He's already done all the work for us. So the life of God and the perfection of the Trinity is so good, it's so wonderful, and God in his great love so desired his people to be a part of it that he sent his beloved Son to do all that we could not do, so that we could be folded into it. So so this is a huge application for us. All the times when the devil whispers low, all the times when you wake up in the morning and you fail to read your Bible, and the day goes wrongly, and at the end of the day, you look back upon your day, and the the, the devil whispers low, if only you'd read your Bible, you could run to the throne of grace. Because you haven't done that. That means of grace is cut off from you. You can say with full confidence, I have failed to read my Bible, but Jesus has done all that is needful for me to run to the throne of grace. All the times in which we are hesitant and unsure whether the Father will welcome us with open arms back into the party We get to remember that Jesus has done all that is necessary for us so that the doors of heaven are wide open. The invitation always stands. Come, return to the Father. Go to the throne of grace. Jesus has opened the way for us. He's done all that we needed so that that means of grace, that that access could be provided for us. We can turn with confidence to this fact again and again and again. Jesus has been baptized for us so that we can enjoy fellowship with God. That's fundamentally what it means that Jesus has been identified with his people. He has taken upon himself our humanity, not just so that we could see him with our eyes, but in order to take upon himself everything about us and do for us all that we must do but can't, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for us so that we can enjoy the joyful fellowship of the Trinity. That's the first part of this ministry, of this ministry of this, and this min- mystery. So the second part of this mystery is that Jesus was empowered by the Spirit. So immediately after Jesus was baptized, Matthew tells us, John saw the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus like a dove. This clues us into the fact that God's Spirit is within Jesus in the closest possible connection. It's not that Jesus stood in need somehow of the Spirit to make him more like God. No, that's not it. No, Jesus is fully God, even as he is fully man. But the Spirit strengthened his human nature and shows us that everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry was by God's divine plan and approval. Knox Chamberlain puts it like this in his commentary. He says this, The Spirit by whose power Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb now anoints him for his manifold mission including the imminent ordeal in the desert. Just as the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from the day Samuel anointed him, so now the Spirit anoints the Son of David to equip him for service. Not only that, according to Mark 1.10, the Spirit entered into Jesus. The endowment is not merely external to equip him for service. The Spirit's power floods Jesus' whole being. Now, it's not exactly clear why God chose to represent the spirit in the form of a dove. Perhaps we're meant to think of God's having sent a dove to Noah uh, to mark the end of the flood, or perhaps we're meant to think of uh, the the spirit hovering over the waters at the the, uh, days of creation, beginning to fashion order out of chaos. Perhaps we're meant to think of these things. But in any case, what is clear is that God did this in order to make it unmistakable that Jesus was on a Trinitarian mission to bring about this order, to fashion a new creation, and ultimately to bring His people into the joyful fellowship of the Trinity. So that's the second part of this glorious ministry. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit. The third and final part of this mystery is the heavenly declaration spoken over Jesus that He is God's beloved Son, with whom He is well-pleased. Now, the opening words of this verse, verse 17, this is my son, recall for us Psalm 2, don't they? In Psalm 2, Yahweh speaks about the king he has established in Zion, saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he promises to make the nations his heritage. Now, it's not surprising, given what we know about Psalm 2, that Herod in the kingdom of darkness tried to take their stand against God's son, against God's anointed. This is what Psalm 2 had predicted, and their stand has not worked at all, which is also what Psalm 2 has predicted. God has stood above these earthly potentates. He has mocked their foolish, vain ambitions. He has given his son a kingdom. This is what the Father always intended to give his son, to give his son a kingdom filled with people from every nation, and now the first explosive movements towards the realization of this plan are being revealed and it's Trinitarian through and through. The kind of king that Jesus has come into our world to be is exactly the kind of king the Father has long promised. Jesus' suffering, his humility, his ministry to the sick and the outcast, the extension of his kingdom to the nations, the farthest nations, Jesus' identification with his people, this is the kind of king the Father intends his son to be. This is the kind of king the Son delights to be. This is the kind of king the Spirit empowers Jesus to be. Listen to how William Hendrickson powerfully describes this Trinitarian plan of redemption. This is a longish quote, but it's it's really good. It helps us to see these things very clearly, I think. He says, No higher love is possible than the love which the Father cherished toward his Son. According to the verbal adjective here used, beloved, this love is deep-seated, thoroughgoing, as great as is the heart of God itself. It is also as intelligent and per- purposeful, purposeful as is the mind of God. It is tender, vast, infinite. How filled with comfort this paragraph, comfort not only for the Son and for John, but for every child of God for it indicates that not only the Son loves his followers enough to suffer the pangs of hell in their stead, but that also the Spirit fully cooperates by strengthening him for this task, and that the Father, instead of frowning upon the one who undertakes it, is so very pleased with him that he must needs render asunder the the very heavens that his voice of delightful approval may be heard on earth. All three are equally interested in our salvation, and the three are one. You know, this Advent season, we've been seeking to grow in our capacity to recognize and rejoice in the hopeful reality that our rescuing King has come. And it's fitting that we should close this season with a reminder that our rescuing King has come on a Trinitarian mission. The Father takes the deepest delight in what His Son came into the world to do. And the Spirit takes the deepest delight, first in empowering Jesus to do it, and now in applying that work to our hearts as we grow in faith and obedience to Jesus. This Trinitarian life is the center of reality. There's there's nothing more amazing than God's life, nothing that overtakes it in importance. Everything centers around him. And oh that we might be people who this coming year grow in our recognition of this fact. May we rejoice in the hopeful reality that our King has come to draw us into the very fountain of life in the fellowship of the Trinity. May we make conscious efforts this year to continue to cultivate that discipleship, which helps us to grow in the recognition of this fact, which helps us to apply it to the particulars of our lives, which helps us to recognize that it's in a Trinitarian fashion that Jesus came to, re- to redeem us, to draw us into this glorious life that we now get to share Now, in this world, partly, not fully realized in in all of its fullness just yet, but surely and unmistakably and powerfully. And so as we await the final completion of all these things, the full fulfillment of this great life that Jesus has come to give us, may we be people who cultivate a deeper recognition of all that it means for us so that it begins to permeate into the ways that we talk about life, the ways that we shape and form plans for the future, That's the application of this text for us, this Advent season, and as we enter into a new year. Let the application of it be that at the close of this Advent season and the opening of a new year, we will ponder seriously the question we asked ourselves at the beginning. As we look ahead to the year ahead, what are our hopes and expectations? And how are these things shaping our plans and desires? Let's be people who seek more and more to have our hopes and expectations shaped by the Trinitarian redemption Jesus has accomplished for us. Let's fix our gaze upon the kingdom he came to inaugurate and let our hope in him shape the way that we talk about and think about and engage the world around us. Let people see more and more that we are people who are shaped by the redemptive life that Jesus has drawn us into. What a shame it would be for us as God's people merely to be people who parrot the latest talking points that we hear on social media or the things that we hear on talk radio. What a shame it would be if people, if the world couldn't tell a difference in the way that we engage the big issues of life between us and just ordinary conservatives or ordinary liberals or whoever it might be. No, let's be people who take seriously the redemptive life that Jesus has drawn us into, who see God at the center of everything, who see that All things are working to the benefit of His people in the way that we grow and recognize that He is at the center of all these things. That is for His glory and for His great name, revealed in Jesus Christ, revealed in His great mercy, revealed in His steadfast love for His people, that all these things are working towards. And let's be people who are shaped by this in the way that we talk and engage these big issues would be people who are seeking more and more to grow in our knowledge of the Bible, more and more grow in our knowledge of, of all that God has revealed to us and the way that we apply that to our lives, who are more and more able to pray with confidence and assurance that God hears us, more and more in tune with His mission for the life of the world, more and more seeking to be shaped by the hopeful reality that our rescuing King has come. This isn't a truth just for the Christmas season. It's good for us as Christians to be able to take this time Uh, these few weeks, to really dig down deep into these truths, to be reminded of them in a fresh way. But it's really a truth for the whole of our lives, because the fact that our rescuing king has come is explosive with its meaning and reality for every aspect of our lives, for all the ways that we engage, uh, from, you know, the way that we talk to our neighbors, to the way that we do our jobs, to the way that we engage our families, to the way that we continue to cultivate a posture of humble dependence upon Jesus Christ. The way that we continue to cultivate a desire to hear from him first of all, before we speak about the big issues. So let's use this as as the application of of this text for us this season. May we be people who more and more recognize that it's in a Trinitarian uh, redemption that Jesus has, has come to redeem us into, to share in the divine life that God has given for us in Jesus Christ. So Matthew 3, 13 through 17 teaches us this. Jesus has come in the power of the Spirit as the beloved Son of the Father to identify with His people and fulfill all righteousness. May we never grow tired of these truths. May the Spirit impress them deeply upon our hearts, and may we live them out in this coming year. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, Lord, it is this that we ask, or that you would remind us in a fresh way of the gospel this is a gospel that is trinitarian through and through it is you heavenly father who sent your beloved son it is you blessed spirit who empowered him for his ministry and now applies it to our hearts and lives lord it is you who enjoyed perfect love and fellowship in the fellowship of the trinity even before the ages began and it is out of your great love not from any need that you had in yourself that you have invited us to share in this through our redemption in jesus christ And so Lord, help us to recognize the massive, huge implications of that for the way that we think about life, the way that we think about our lives, and the invitation that you have extended to us through this to grow and to cultivate our discipleship, to apply it in meaningful ways to our lives and the spheres of influence that you placed us in. Lord, we be people who are more and more marked by a humble dependence upon you that grows out of just a wonderful recognition. Of the wonder and the, the amazing facts of the gospel, Lord, may this mark us as Christians in the way that we think and talk about life, even in this coming year, so that You would get the glory and we would get the benefit. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.